Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. My name is Isaiah Leininger. Joining me today, as always, is my good friend Walker Howell. And today, our special guest is Wyatt Fairman. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Wyatt. I'm Wyatt. <laughs> That's all you need to know. Anything more and you'll get arrested. Um, all right. Get arrested. Yeah, why not? Hey, he also does a podcast too. He's a oh, he's a fellow right. podcaster. Should I just go ahead and actually introduce myself? Yes. Yeah, go for it. Yes. Okay. I'm Wyatt Fairman. I'm a, I'm a freshman at Free Hardeman, and I also am a podcaster. I would like to believe I started this wave of podcasts you see now, even though I know that's not true. But um, my <laughs> podcast is In All Fairness, and it is also a faith-based podcast. It's also a play on my last name, Fairman. But uh, In All Fairness, the uh, Christian podcast from the perspective of a Christian podcast student. Uh, rather a college student, not a Christian podcast student. I'm not a student of podcasting. But, uh, oh, well. I should stop talking now. This has gone great. This is the best guest introduction we've had. Yes. All right. So just to welcome those viewers back who have regularly tuned in, we are so thankful for you once again. And we are so thankful for anyone who's listening to this podcast for the first time. Again, this is the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. Our goal is to look at worldly problems through a Christian perspective. Last time we were together, we talked about times of chaos, didn't we, Walker? Oh, yes. And it was chaotic outside when we were discussing that. That's true. That's true. Uh, there was a, a tornado watch going on while we recorded the last episode. Today, we've just got a ton of rain. So, you know, in the middle of the recording, we may need to stop and call Noah, tell him to bring the ark. Yeah, good, they, thank you. the good thing the ark's finished now. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. We're good. Anyway, but the point is, we looked at what to do when we're facing those times of chaos. We looked at why we need to turn to God, lean on him, put our burdens on him, and that's how we can get through those times of chaos. Today we're going to be talking about a different topic. We're going to be talking about what we should believe. Uh, and we're going to be talking about what the Bible says about salvation and specifically how to obtain it. Right, and because there are so many different, uh, different types of um, doctrine that are going around, especially in different churches that you may see on every corner. And so we're being taught all these different things. And we may go to one church one Sunday, they may teach this one thing. And then we go to another church this other Sunday, we, and they may teach another thing. And then our minds are just totally bombarded with all these different types of things that we should believe. And so we don't really know what to believe. So we're going to go through scripture and see what the Bible actually has to say about this topic. Um, so, uh, you know, there's many wrong ways like we've talked about, um, but the Bible gives only one specific um, way to uh, obtain salvation. And how did we get to all these different beliefs and all these uh, different denominations? I think it's because we've taken scripture out of context. Um, and we've also created a culture where we want everything for our own personal entertainment and not for uh, God's gratification. And we also want our own personal uh, satisfaction. And just plain simple fact, there's a lot of false teachers out in the world who want to teach us various different things that are simply just not true. Yeah. There are good points with, that both y'all just mentioned, just introductory mm -hmm. points, of course. And what we really need to realize when we're talking about what to believe is that there are two kinds of people out there, mm -hmm. people who genuinely have no idea what to believe if they should believe something right. who could literally be a bag in the wind tossed wherever the wind carries it. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who believe either the right thing or the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Is it up to us to judge what people should believe? No, it's up to God. Mm -hmm. And we live in America alone, there are studied to be over 200 different types of denominations. Globally, they're estimating 45,000 wow, different wow. denominations of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And what's so funny is we in America, we drive around, we see maybe seven different denominations on our way to our own church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, imagine driving around the entire world and seeing all the different ideas and beliefs that come into people's minds and hearts. And or is there really that many? Some people question that that's a really that's a really easy argument to bring up. It's mm -hmm. forty five thousand, such a huge number, right? But you got to consider if there are only two hundred ideas in America alone, America, just one country. What do all the other two hundred countries have to offer? Mm -hmm. Just a simple thought. I'll let you two guide us into the actual lesson. 
Yep. So, um, yeah, and that, I've never heard that there's 45,000. That is crazy to me. Um, but, you know, w- so what does the scripture say about all these uh, all these 45,000 different <laughs> churches across America, across the world? Well, that's, a, that's a really good question, Walker. Uh, and to answer that, I want us to go to Ephesians chapter 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is, of course, writing to the church at Ephesus, trying to encourage them to be united, uh, trying to encourage them to be together in one. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll go ahead and pick up in verse 3. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul doesn't say there's many different ways. There's 45,000 faiths, right? Paul says there's one. So whenever we talk about what the Bible says we should believe, or we talk about the plan of salvation, Paul says there's only one way. And so we need to recognize that the Bible does specify how to get to heaven. The Bible does tell us that there is a right way. And so we need to be able to distinguish what is the right way and what is not the right way. I would ask you, playing a little bit of devil's advocate, just because you know, I've personally, I've grown up in the church. I've been a member of the church for five years, just about. And I've also talked to many people that have absolutely no experiences similar to mine, a completely different upbringing, different religions. I've talked to people, the Islam faith, the Jewish faith, all these other big religions that take priority over our world today. And I would ask you, if there's one faith, what's stopping someone from simply saying, well, that's just one faith to you? That's one faith that you've decided for just yourself. You see, I, I would even take this a little bit further. Is it possible that Paul here in Ephesians is telling you there's one faith just to let you know that it's only possible for you to believe one thing. How can you believe in Christianity as we know it today and Judaism when the two completely contradict each other? It's not possible. Well, in answer to that question, I would say that Paul also pointed out there is one God. And that God is of one mind. That God does not have different creeds for different people. That God does not give different orders for different people. And so if we believe that there is one God and that, and we believe that God has one word and that word is the Bible, then, you know, uh, that answers that question. Not, uh, no, go, go ahead. Uh, and I think it's also important to point out, we, we may specify that there is one God, but if we're going to play the devil's advocate here, then we could say that uh, all these other different religions who claim that there is one God, which would be their God, we also claim uh, there is one God in our religion as well, and that is the God of the Bible. So we have to first believe in the God of the Bible if we want to fully apply this passage to our life, because we can just say one God, but if we say that in a generic sense, then that could be interpreted to other people who may be listening to this podcast from different religions that they're they're paying attention to their one God, so therefore they're they're doing what Scripture commands. Yeah, and I, I agree with you both exactly. Of course, I was just playing devil's advocate. I think it's important to realize in the, in the passage Isaiah just read to us about the unity of the spirit, and the bond of peace. Now, there's something that connects the church with each other, and that is God specifically. How many times have you talked to someone who said, well, my church does this, my church does that. Well, it's, it's not your church to begin with. It's God's. He purchased it with the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah. There's a, u- there's a unifying structure here. You can go to any church of Christ that is legitimately the church, mm-hmm. and they would tell you the same thing as another would as another. Now, there are some that claim to be church of Christ that maybe just don't follow what the Bible says, per se. I'm not, I'm not ruling that out as an impossibility. But I would like to bring up that this unity in faith, you don't see it among the other 44,999 denominations there are. That's true. Because the church is not a denomination, it's the church. Yes. For sure. Um, and I definitely agree. Um, and so, you know, 
like we were saying earlier, the ways that we've gotten down these all, all these wrong ways is because uh, twisting a scripture. Um, I think we were going to first point out Second Peter chapter three verses fourteen through sixteen. Um, do you already have that? I I do. I'll go ahead and read it for us now. Okay. Second Peter chapter three, starting in verse fourteen. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter is closing out his second epistle here. He's writing to Christians of the first century, and he's talking about this salvation uh, that we can find in our Lord, uh, just as Paul had talked to them about. And then he mentions that some of the things that Paul writes can be difficult to understand. You know, they're, they're not, you know, something that you can just look at and go, oh, I know what that means right off the top of my head. Uh, and then Peter, the, the point that we want to emphasize here is in at the end of verse 16, the ignorant and the unstable twist the scriptures to their own destruction. I think that's so interesting when Peter's basically commentating, commentating on Paul's ministry and Paul's evangelism, because throughout scripture, you see almost a rivalry between the two of sorts. And, and you know, uh, scholars like to, you know, make jokes about that, highlight that as something funny and humorous. And I truly believe that is an all good fun. But the moral of the story is it's not Paul's teachings. It's God's teachings. It's not Peter's teachings. It's God's teaching. You talk about that unity in spirit. You saw that early on in the very beginning of the church. You're the New Testament church. It's the same unifying structure. But the question I would pose to you that will get you off topic from your, the script you provided me, but mm-hmm. I'm just going to throw you a few curveballs because that's who I am. Um, <laughs> is it possible that this early on in the church, there are already denominations of the church? Most definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, I think I think denominations uh, became a, they may have not have been called denominations at this time, but I definitely believe that people have already figured out uh, different ways that they wanted to uh, live their life or they wanted to uh, take scripture and interpret it in their own ways. And they've already done so. I, I, I truly believe that because, I mean, if you look at Philippians now, we're not sure uh, we're, we don't have like a historical timeline on when these um books were actually uh well when these events actually took place but in philippians um you know the the struggle there was that the churches were not unified and they were not um they were not struggling and same thing in ephesians like we pointed out earlier uh whenever paul was writing to the churches at ephesus they were not unified and so he was writing in a sense of unity so there's already division happening there um in uh philippians if i'm not mistaken i could be misspeaking but Philippians, and I know definitely whenever Paul's writing to the churches at Ephesus, and whenever you were pointing out about it's not Paul's church, but it's Christ's church, it reminded me of First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which can come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, unless wranglings of men uh, of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose godliness is means of gain, from such withdraw yourself. Do you have a point? No. Oh, okay. Not yet. I was just going to say that, you know, Jesus warned of there being false teachers coming before the church was even started. Mm -hmm. Uh, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15 Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Mm-hmm. Jesus says there's going to come people who sound really good. Mm-hmm. There's going to come some people who, you know, it sounds like they know what they're talking about. It sounds like they care for you. It sounds like they want the best for you. But inside, they're like what Peter said. They're ignorant and unstable. And they're going to twist the scriptures for their own profit, uh, which is what the, the passage in First Timothy, if you continue to read into chapter 6, will talk about. They would twist the scriptures for their own profit, and then they would lead people away from the church. They would lead people away from God, and they would destroy the faith 
of Christians because of teaching things that were not supposed to be taught. Absolutely. So now we, we talked about how Jesus felt about this, how Jesus described what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And now we've read it kind of unfolding, talked about maybe there being the potential for different denominations as early as maybe even the church itself started. Right. We've talked about all these different distractions that have come our way. And I see on the layout how we're going to talk about there's one right way. Mm -hmm. What I didn't see in the layout, I, I didn't dig too deep into this. You could have hit this somewhere and I didn't see it. But how is anyone that's listening to us going to believe this one right way until they actually believe the Word of God itself? Yeah. We have to prove the Scriptures. And so mm -hmm. if I could take you on a tangent, that would yes. be just a few minutes. Just <laughs> yes. something I came up with. Um, well, I didn't come up with it. I, I, I was merely just reading. But I want to look at Joseph. Okay. Um, not the one in Genesis, but the one that was, you know, not biologically, but the father of Jesus. Mm -hmm. you, you know it would be kind of crazy to me? And I'm not married, but if my wife told me that she was pregnant, now how? You know, mm -hmm. oh, we've not you know done anything we shouldn't to put this vaguely, and she says, "Well, actually, the Holy Spirit impregnated me." Likely story, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Raise your hand if you're going to believe that one. And as you see, Joseph maybe didn't as much. Mm -hmm. Because what we read in Luke chapter 1, actually maybe Luke chapter 2, I'm trying to remember. You can turn there with me if you want. We're talking about the birth of Jesus, and you'll see how this applies in just a second. Yeah, so Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Now, keyword betrothed here basically meaning engaged. They're not married yet, mm -hmm. but there's a lot more context there than people think. Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. We know that child to be David. Now, if you want to like mark your hand, David. In, uh, Jesus, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me. The child is Jesus. Um, but turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 1. Let's look at another gospel account describing uh, the beginning of all this, the beginning of Jesus' life, and really Joseph and his character. The chapter of difficult names. <laughs> the chapter of very difficult names. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, well, engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a what? Mine says being a just man. Just man. The, uh, there are other translations that say a good man. But a just man, a fair man, if you will. Sorry, that, that's a play on my last name. <laughs> and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay, so again, it's a likely story. When, when your fiancé is saying, oh, I'm pregnant, but don't worry. God's the one who impregnated me. <laughs> Um, what? <laughs> no, you're lying. You're delusional, right? But what, as he goes to divorce her, he's going to do this quietly because throughout all this, he doesn't want any shame to fall upon her. So we keep reading in Matthew, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, there it is again, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit confirming the story. So what happens? He stays with her. He believes in God. Now, we have delusional dreams all the time. It's different back then considering he would be the patriarch of this family and God did talk to the patriarchs. But this is still a little bit far-fetched, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Now, I get that's also a little bit dated past that time, you know, God talking to Moses and the burning bush and other patriarchs, but... Through the conversation, this is Old Testament. Jesus has not been resurrected from the dead yet. Mm -hmm. If we go back to Luke, all this is going to tie together real quickly. Okay. 
start verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, or engaged, who was with child. That child is Jesus. And I'm sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there's no place for them in the end. Have you ever considered why Mary gave birth in Bethlehem? All this time that she's pregnant, and it's when he goes to register them in a census, one of the very first censuses to really ever take place. What about that potential shame of being outside that secluded area for the first time? You're in a new environment, but still it's so anxiety gripping that maybe the stress of it, and I'm totally speculating here. This, I'm not passing this off as truth whatsoever. Mm -hmm. What if that almost induced a fulfillment of prophecy of Jesus' birth? Part two of that, when Joseph learned what the truth was, he didn't shy from it. He obeyed God. Imagine a man who is engaged to someone who's pregnant, and the father is not him. The father is literally God. But again, likely story, try telling that to someone else. Instead of, you know, trying to hide from that fact, he goes back to where his family is from, in the well-respected Bethlehem, translated city of David. He's even of the lineage of David, the Bible shares. How horrifying do you think that might be? Embarrassing, humiliating might that be to show up and your wife is pregnant, but no, it's not your own. How tempted would you be to maybe lie about that? Maybe try and cover that up? You see, all these things happened without the benefit of the Bible for them. This was God talking to them. And I know this is like a ramble. And I'm talking way too long, longer than y'all expected. But Joseph obeyed. And from that, we have series of people obeying Jesus throughout the rest of the Bible. Without Joseph's obedience here, we don't get the rest of the obedience. We don't even get a chance to obey. So circle that in to the Word of God and how that actually works. How can you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God if God isn't the one talking? If you have an idea that differs from specifically what God has said to do, when God says, name your child Emmanuel, meaning God with us, that's an order. When God says, stick with it, and he does it through all the shame and the anxiety and giving birth in his hometown, basically, around his family, with everyone who possibly could judge him, that was from his side in the lineage of David, that takes some serious guts. You want to know what to believe? A one-word answer, believe God. And you have to consider the authority of its word. How is it that Matthew and Luke complement each other so well here? It truly is the word of God. That's my take on this. You have to believe this in order to really believe. Hey there, we're glad you're listening to our podcast. We want you to remember that we also have an Instagram page that we encourage you to go follow. You can find us on Instagram at T-T-E-O-J underscore podcast, or you can also visit our website, T-T-E-O-J.com. We look forward to hearing from you and giving us a follow on Instagram. Hey there, <laughs> you know, have you ever asked yourself any of the following questions, such as what's my purpose? Does God exist? What should I expect after death? Why are there so many churches? Do you have an open mind? If so, I would love to share some studies with you. I don't want to force my beliefs on anyone, but I'm willing to study with people of all walks of life. How could you benefit? What questions do you have? Let me know, 731-439-9671. Or you can find out more information on my website, PreacherWalkerMinistry.com. Welcome back from that short little break. Wyatt, thank you so much for that explanation uh, into the story of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. Uh, and 
you know, something that you brought up that I want to want to hit on a little bit. Joseph's obedience to God led to our obedience. And of course, in between that, we have the apostles. We have the first century Christians and, and everyone uh, who followed them until we get to the present day where we're where we where we are at. <laughs> oh, dear. But, uh, you know, that reminded me that not everyone is going to obey Christ. And that that's really unfortunate. Uh, uh, not everyone is going to obey Christ, even those who, who think they are. Uh, the verse that comes to my mind is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So it's important for us to remember that God says that some will not be saved. Not everyone will go to heaven. And even those who claim to be Christians, even those who think that they are obeying God, may not be able to because they are not truly doing what the Bible says. And I want to stop our conversation for just a moment and implore you, you the individual listener, take a look at your life. Please make sure that it matches up with what the Bible says. The Bible is a mirror for us. And if we are not in, uh, seen in imperfection in that mirror, then we need to make some changes. Absolutely, Isaiah. And, you know, if you just continue further, you hear that age-old story of the wise and foolish man. You know, <laughs> the wise man builds his house on the rock, the foolish yeah. man builds his house on the sand. And you know, there's a VBS song about it, you know, <laughs> and the foolish man's house went splat. Yeah. But what people don't often realize is that foolish man probably thought he knew what he was doing when he built his house in the sand. He probably thought this was a good idea. This is a place where he could live. And it turns out that this shelter he thought he had, this home he thought he had built, he thought it was well-supported, and it wasn't. Don't be like the foolish man or at least looked at as a fool because you think you're safe. Know you're safe and obey the word of God for what it is, not for what you want it to be. Absolutely, uh, Wyatt. Walker, Wyatt, that's going to mess with me. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the question then becomes, all right, so if not everyone is going to heaven, and if we need to follow the Bible, to, or uh, it, how do we find out how to go to heaven? And the answer is we need to look at the Bible. Excuse me, I stumble there. Uh, I want to quickly look at Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul's telling Timothy here, and by uh, application us, we need to make sure that we are not ashamed before God. We need to make sure that we have looked at his word, meditated on it, focused on it, in other words, and made sure that we are living the way that we are supposed to. And again, not everyone who thinks they're living the way they're supposed to are actually doing it. So please, again, listener, take the time to read the word of God for yourself and make sure that what you're doing in your life matches up with what you find in those pages. Hey, I want to uh, pause a quick moment and mention that, um, you know, it, maybe you need help uh, with what, what uh, maybe you want to study more about this idea of lining up your life or seeing what the Bible has to say about certain issues in your life. Remember, you can always contact us, 731-439-9671. You can always email us, um, and the email will be in the description below. And you're more than welcome to message us, call us, email us, whatever you would like to do. But I also want to go back to Matthew chapter 7 really quickly. And because we hit on verses 15, and then we hit on verse 21 through 23. But there's uh, two very uh, important verses, that I think, really go into what you were just saying, Isaiah. And that's verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because, the, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Here we find that, you know, the Bible explicitly says that the way to get to heaven, the way to get to eternal life is going to be, it's going to be hard. It's going to be few who find it because everyone thinks that, like you said, they're going down the right path. And we may have the mindset of the foolish man, like Wyatt said, where we think 
whenever we're building our house on the sand, we think we're building the right house, but in all reality, we're, we're on the wrong foundation and in all reality. And so we need to fix our foundation. And so definitely, I just wanted to point out those two things, but I'll let you continue your thought if you have anything else to add. I don't think uh, there is anything else that we need to say at the moment. Okay. We've, we've established the fact that not everyone will be saved. Mm -hmm. We've looked at the fact that the Bible is the only authority on how to be saved. Right. So now the question is, how? What does the Bible say about salvation? How does the Bible outline the plan of salvation? And it's six steps. Six steps that seem easy, mm -hmm. can be easy in moments, and other moments can be very challenging. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you there just for the sake of clarity, because mm -hmm. we may have people who they've heard similar stories before. Six steps. So you know, this denomination has their creed or their ideas. This is not six continuously written steps in a row. Right. This isn't like your Ten Commandments written on stone. This is mm -hmm. throughout the entirety of Scripture. What you can amass together is six steps that are, necess that are necessities for your salvation. Go ahead. And uh, to bounce off that point, Wyatt, the reason that we don't see in the scriptures six, just one after another verses that say everything you need to do is because a lot of the Bible, especially the New Testament, is conversation. Uh, you see people writing letters to one another. You see people talking in, in person to one another. And different people have different needs, right? Uh, if you look at, for example, the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, He's told to believe in God and he will be saved. We'll look at that in a little bit. The crowd at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 were told to repent and be baptized and they will be saved. Well, which is it? it, it they're both true. They just are starting from different points. The Philippian jailer, as far as we know, has no religious background. And if he does have a religious background, it's in paganism. It's in worshiping multiple false gods. And... So he needs to first believe in God before he can get to where the crowd of Pentecost was because the crowd of Pentecost was made up of devout Jews. It specifically says that in Acts chapter two, that Jerusalem was filled with devout Jews. These were people who studied the Old Testament very, very thoroughly. They already believed in God. They already believed in his promises. The Philippian jailer did not. So Paul and Silas there in Acts chapter 16 have to start where the jailer is. They have to meet him where he's at. Peter did the same thing for the crowd in Acts chapter 2. He met them where they were at. And so that's why we don't see one after another just six straight steps that the Bible says, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. Because the Bible is stories of, uh, and of course, true stories, but they're stories of people at different points in their life finding the way home, finding a way to be with Christ. That's right. Um, and one of the first steps that we, uh, I think one of the first things to understand, and we really talked about this throughout the whole episode, and that is about this uh, one way, this one, you know, this one truth or whatever. But it's also to, important to understand that there's only one gospel, and that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, if you like to reference that for uh this. and in every single gospel account <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> and in every single gospel account as well um but we often refer to the gospel as the good news and as wyatt was saying these are six steps that are outlined throughout the entirety of scripture but they are not uh they're not just listed out for us in the particular section of the bible and so the first one that we see is romans chapter 10 verses 16 through 17 where it talks about hearing the word of god and so we need to... Uh, I just want to quickly interject here. Um, the order that we are going in is not, again, not found in Scripture. Mm -hmm. But it's the order that makes the most logical sense. Uh, for instance, uh, we, we, I talked a little bit about the Roman jailer needed to believe before he could repent. Uh, he needed uh, to believe in God before he had to repent of his sins right. towards God. Uh, and so, again, this is not... The order is not found in Scripture, but it's the order that makes logical sense. It's the progressive order. I just wanted to, to make that clear before we continue. Yes, um, and that's a very good point to make because, um, and like I was saying, we first must hear the word um, because, like we were saying earlier, not everyone's going to be uh, saved automatically. We can't just hear the word and boom, we're automatically saved. Um, hearing the gospel uh, is 
in order to help someone progress onto the next step, which is believing what they've heard. And so as we talked about earlier, there being one God, one, one Bible, one truth. Um, and we understand that God is the uh, only way to get to heaven. Um, and we even find that in John chapter 14 and verse six, we know we mentioned this every week and you may figure out that this is my favorite verse by far, but you know, Jesus says that I'm the way, the truth and the life and that no man comes to the father except through him. And so, you know, he, he says that he's the way. And so if we, if we know that he's the way, then we got to believe it. And then we got to be willing to repent of our sins and turn away and make a change in our life. And I think this is the most crucial step. Absolutely. Because when we repent of our sins, that's when we recognize our weakness. That's when we recognize the fact that God is superior. I am inferior. God has made laws. I have broken them. My sin, my lawlessness, the fact that I have broken God's laws separates me from God. And that right there is a moment of transition. It has to be for it to be legitimate. What I mean by that is this. Again, we're going back to that foolish man illustration. Maybe he had all the right intentions. Maybe he thought he was in the right, and then the waves came upon his house, and, and it went splat, as we sing about. This repentance has to be genuine. You know what repentance really means when you boil, when, when you boil it down to it? Godly sorrow. Do what? Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, by definition. Why are you sorrowful? Because you understand that you've done wrong in your life. So if you've done wrong in your life, what are you going to want to do? Change it. Make Change it right. It. Make it right. Yeah. The simple one-word explanation I've heard that you could almost replace repentance with. It's not sorry, per se. That, that makes a lot of sense, and you should feel sorrowful and sorry for you know, the things you've done that just are sinful, just aren't right. But change. You cannot be repentful. Unless you literally change your ways, change your action. Because you may be like Isaiah said, you may have identified in your mind that you're inferior and God is superior. And then you proceed to go out and sin. And that's in a way kind of saying that you're superior and God is inferior. Now that being said, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We know that we are going to sin. But it's a matter of repentance when that happens. It's a matter of obtaining that forgiveness and that salvation. Uh, Jesus says in Luke chapter 13 and verse three, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he repeats himself again in verse five. Repentance leads to salvation because that is what we, that is like Wyatt said, that is a transitional moment. That is when we realize the fact that we cannot continue going on the same path. We have to make a complete and drastic change and start following God with all of our hearts. Yeah, not to take too much more of the limelight or spotlight here just by talking a lot. <laughs> but uh, you, the next step, confession, I'm just going to skip ahead because, again, I'm, I'm throwing curveballs at you. You may not have been done with repentance. That's fine. You can go back to it. But these two, repentance and confession, I would like to think of as almost interchangeable. Now, hear me out, because I, there's some people listening to this like, whoa, these are two separate steps. You told us there were six. Now there's five. What? No, they are separate steps. I'm talking about placement, because actions speak louder than words. If you've listened to these episodes before, you know we're eventually going to get to baptism. We're eventually going to, we're going to, get, to, we're going to get to having faith until death. We're going to get there. But if you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, which is the next step, you have to enact a change in your life that represents that confession. Now, that specific action is, of course, baptism. And then it's, of course, for the rest of your life. And I'm going to let you get there, of course. Mm -hmm. But at this moment, when you repent, you recognize that you're also confessing. When you are sorry, when you want forgiveness, and when you truly change your heart, you are confessing to yourself that God is superior. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again. You have to confess that to yourself before you can before you can truly confess it to anybody else. And that confessing it to any, anybody else is very, very crucial, as we see in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32. Yep. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. 
But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And what's so funny about that is if, it's not really, but if you keep reading it, you have to remember the context. The scoffers will look at this and say, but Jesus is talking to the apostles. He is about to send out the 12 apostles, and that's what's happening here. He is addressing them and what they're going through. And then he says this in verse 34 through a few others. Uh, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Given the addresses he makes there, it sounds like he's a little bit more generic than just his apostles. Mm -hmm. And it's also to be inferred that with this confession, there truly does come action. This confession may not make everyone in your life happy. It may not please a parent or a sibling or a child or a friend or extended family. It doesn't need to because it makes God happy and it should make you happy. Mm-hmm. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier, doing things for our own personal satisfaction. We shouldn't be doing things for our own personal satisfaction. It, this whole salvation thing is based upon because we realize that, like Wyatt was saying, we need to change and we need to turn away from the sins that are in our life and we need to uh, do these things not not to make the people around us happy, but to make God happy and to change our life because we desire to want to be in heaven with him one day. And though I agree with that point, I must bring up a slight objection. It, it doesn't address or change what you said at all. But really, when you think about it, if you're making God happy and you are a Christian, would that not make you happy to know that you're making your creator and our Lord happy? Mm-hmm. It's not about your own personal satisfaction. It's about God's satisfaction, but right. then in turn, you should feel satisfied. Yeah. Agreed. I say well, I was just going to say that Jesus, uh, you know, we, we hear the, the health and wealth gospel, or at least uh, that's the term that has been called, <laughs> that it's been called. Um, you know, the, the idea that Jesus wants us to be rich and happy, and that's all he wants for us in life. And like you guys were saying, that's not it. That's not what Jesus expects from us. He expects us to pick up our cross daily and follow him. We see that in verses like Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just reminded of a passage at the end of John chapter 16. Uh, John chapter 16 uh, and verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And here, uh, Jesus, for context, Jesus is talking to his apostles, and they're confused, they're upset that Jesus is saying things like, I'm going to go die on the cross, which would, you know, upset us if our teacher or our mentor said that. Uh, But he's saying, you know, you're going to be upset about this, but the world's going to rejoice, because through uh, Jesus going to the cross, we have salvation. And so while there are things in this world that may not please us too much, and there are things that maybe we would want to do, if, but we recognize the fact that God said we shouldn't do them, our sorrow, quote-unquote sorrow, will turn into joy. And, you know, like you were saying, you know, leading up to this point, he's about to go into the garden to pray, if I'm not mistaken. And then later on, he'll be crucified and he'll be beaten, he'll be tortured, and he'll be hung on that cross at Calvary to die for you and for I. And it's like you were saying, it's because of that death and the burial and the resurrection that we have the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins. But how do we become forgiven of our sins if we've never taken the steps to do so before? And that's what Wyatt was talking about earlier, which is the step that we've been, uh, that we worked our way up to, and that is baptism. And I want to make this clarification because people may think that there's something special in the water that um, that saves you. But First Peter 3 and verse 21 addresses that issue, that there's nothing in the water that saves us. It's the act of obedience. It's the doing of it, it's it's going through the process of being buried in the water, which represents his blood and then being raised to walk in newness of life. And that 
through that process, you become a new creation and you become someone who is now a Christian who is then called to live a life that is like Christ. Absolutely. Uh, and we see the picture of Christ shown in the model of baptism. We die with Christ when we raise up again in baptism with our sins washed away. But that's not the, the last thing. We're, we're not just washed away and then we're done. We have to stick with it. Jesus said, pick up your cross daily. He didn't say pick up your cross daily until you're baptized and then you can do, go do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be faithful until death. That's what Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us. We need to make sure that we are following Christ until the day we die. Why do you have a point? Yeah, Isaiah. <laughs> Isaiah is a, not, not that Isaiah. <laughs> yeah, the Bible Isaiah, the prophet. Isaiah 40, and if you've read Isaiah 40, you'd know that is a huge and really important chapter, mm -hmm. and it prophesies so many different things and alludes to so many different things. I would take you, if you want to turn with me, which you okay. don't have to, but me saying it like this is kind of implying that you probably should, because <laughs> I'm just here to mess with y'all. Um, <laughs> Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I, I, the narrator, Isaiah, says, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. At first I read this, and I had so many questions. I still have questions about this. I still don't understand this passage to its entirety but one question i thought was a voice says cry and i thought what voice is crying because usually in instances like this it's addressed when god is talking or when jesus or the holy spirit is speaking but it's a voice a lowercase v a voice says cry and i said what shall i cry so this is not only just some voice who we don't really know is talking saying cry it's a command it's you have to cry you have to raise your voice you have to say something and then i i thought about it a little bit more and if you actually look up a few verses and i didn't notice it notice this at first glance but in verse three a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of God shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What's really interesting here is that the Bible is the mouth of the Lord. And then the very first words of the book of John talk about the word of God being equal to God itself, then maybe this voice crying is John. A voice cries in the wilderness. John is in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. John's role is to prepare the way of Jesus Christ. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, which was literally John's mission before Jesus ever even came to the picture. Jesus, who's also considered a mouth of God. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. In context now, the word of God stands forever is the little subtitle I have before verse 6, a voice. Mm -hmm. Now we may have a character. Maybe John says, cry. John is instructing you to say something. And I said, what shall I cry? What if it's a little bit more encompassing than that? A voice says to do something and you don't know what to do. And here it is telling you what to do. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. But just earlier, it said it's going to make straight in the desert a highway. Have you seen grass in the desert? Have you seen a flower in the desert? And I've seen flowers on cactuses. I mean, they're pretty cool. <laughs> but how can anything, how can grass in the desert stand? How can a flower in the desert stand? And again, this is reading a lot into it. I'm combining two separate, well, you could argue two separate things. 
But if you combine them together, this makes sense when it says in verse 7, the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass will wither and the flower fades, but what the word of God will stand forever. This was prophesied in Isaiah before the New Testament ever came about. This last step we talked about, being faithful to God. Don't be the grass that withers. Don't be the flower that fades away. God is constantly breathing on us. There's, there's a weird song, but it's an old song, called God Breathed on Me. And it's the idea that Throughout this world, and we learned in Isaiah that Isaiah there that the, the environment changed completely when Jesus came into the scene. You know, all these problems that we had went away. Now we have grass in the fields and flowers in the fields. And we can be that plant. Don't let that wither away. You've got to keep spreading the word of God. Keep planting those seeds so more flowers and fruit can grow. Amen. That's the whole mission. Amen. of being faithful till death. It's not so you get your ticket to heaven, mm-hmm. it's so others can get their ticket to heaven as Amen. well. And it's been prophesied since the very beginning. Yes. Thank you so much for that, Wyatt, and for, for all of your comments. We, we, we really appreciated it. Uh, to wrap everything that we've talked about up, the Bible is the authority of salvation. The Bible says there's one way to salvation, and the Bible says that that one way is that you first need to hear the gospel or the Bible, the good news. You need to believe in what it says. You need to recognize your sins and repent of them. Not just be sorry, but change. Be so sorrowful that it causes you to change your life. And then you need to confess that Jesus is Lord, both to yourself and to those around you. You need to be fully immersed in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. And then live faithfully until death. If we can help you with any of those steps in any way, please let us know at 731-439-9671. We also are on Instagram, tteoj underscore podcast. You can reach out to us there as well. And we have a website coming March the 11th. If you feel the need to wait until then and contact us on the website, you can. But again, we have the phone number We have the Instagram. We would be so, so happy to talk to you about the scriptures or about anything that you need to talk about. Uh, From Wyatt and from Walker, thank you so much for tuning in. We love you. God loves you. Have a blessed day.